welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Ruby. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday night IBS podcast episode. It's exciting to have two really um, well-respected guests joining us this month for the month of September. For September, we're really excited to be partnering with um, a really a new partner for us, uh, an, an, uh, say an organization or a journal, uh, Evidence-Based GI, which is an ACG publication. And we're going to be talking with them about a recent um, article that they reviewed in this journal. But before we do that, some quick introductions. I'm joined by uh, Dr. Jill Deutsch and Dr. Philip Schoenfeld. Uh, Dr. Joy Deutsch is the assistant professor and director of the Yale Functional Gastrointestinal Disorders Program in the Division of Digestive Disease at Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, Dr. Schoenfeld doesn't need a lot of introduction. He's very well known in the field, but nonetheless is chief emeritus of the gastroenterology section at the John D. Dingle VA Medical Center in Detroit, Michigan, and does a lot of other things um, in the field of GI. So hello to both of you. Welcome. And thanks for joining us this month. Thanks, thanks so much for having us, Johanna. All right. So we have a lot to delve into um, this month and, and today on our, our podcast. I'm curious, uh, Dr. Schoenfeld, you are the editor-in-chief of this new journal, and I'd love it if you shared with us um, to kick off what it is, how it came to be, and what your goals are for this journal. Sure. Evidence-Based GI is a ACG publication that is online. It's sent out as a blast email in the middle of each month to all ACG members. And it is also available in the publications tab for the American College of Gastroenterology website. The publication itself contains four summaries of clinical GI research studies each month. And the objective of the publication is to summarize critical GI clinical research published in non-GI journals. That is, randomized controlled trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA or The Lancet, as well as to take a closer look at European GI journals such as GUT that the average ACG member does not review. And each summary contains a structured abstract, 
based on evidence-based medicine principles that really identifies if a study is well-designed and will produce accurate results, as well as uh, describing those results in a way that is understandable to a non-statistician, followed by a standardized commentary that discusses why the topic is important, what is the key study finding, and how the research can be integrated into the practice for the average gastroenterologist. That's great. So um, you chose to review an article that was published by Lynn Chang and colleagues um, looking at a phase 3B trial using a novel abdominal scoring system um, of, a, of a certain drug, um, linactotide for IBSC. Why did you choose to uh, summarize and highlight this study? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First, um, as a ACG publication, we always try to summarize one study from the Red Journal, the American Journal of Gastroenterology, each month, since that's our sister ACG publication. The second reason is that this is really a seminal randomized control trial assessing the benefit of an IBS drug for abdominal pain. And as my colleague Jill knows well, it may be easier to manage the diarrhea or constipation associated with IBS, but improving the abdominal discomfort can be more of a challenge and that's frequently the symptom or array of symptoms that drives a patient to seek out medical care. So that, so that makes this a really important study for both gastroenterologists and primary care providers and patients to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. So um, let's, let's just remind our listeners, you know, we do have a mixed audience of both patients and providers. So for those um, mostly patients, I hope, hope just patients, not providers who don't know what a secrete gog is. Um, Dr. Joich, can you just remind us about this class of drug and what it is and, and how it works in, in IBSC? Absolutely. Um, so back to sort of basic sciences here, right? So um, I think that many of us um, sort of use the term secretagogue and osmotic type laxative very similarly, uh, where the intention is to try to help draw water into the stool. Uh, but the secretagogues that live on the market uh, by way of linaclotide and placanotide are guanylacyclase C agonists. Um, so at the sort of microscopic levels, we'll control um, the channels essentially that help to draw water into the lumen of the GI tract um, in order to improve constipation by way of improving both the form and frequency of bowel movements. As um, Phil also mentioned, um, it's really important to note that this pathophysiologic mechanism, the guanolite cyclase C agonist, um, also has been shown indeed to improve abdominal pain um, and really is very important in this study um, to improve that composite abdominal score, including pain, uh, bloating, and discomfort. 
Great. And it's um, just good to mention, too, that both the ACG and the AGA made strong recommendations for the use of secretagogues in treatment of, of IBSC. So let's um, let's delve into the actual um, study. I'm going to go ahead um, for those of you who are listening, apologies, but um, for those of you who see us on our video here, I'd like to share some really interesting slides um, as we go through um, this talk and, and just kind of talk through. So here we're seeing the ACG and AGA guidelines for IBSC listed out here and lenactatide and placanatide, as Dr. Deutsch mentioned, are listed as recommendations. Um, what about um, the polyethanol glycol not being recommended for the use in IBSC, uh, Dr. Schoenfeld, in your experience and your your um, expertise, why do you think that that is not uh, a recommendation? So many patients rely on that and use that as a first line. Sure. So polyethylene glycol, which we think of more commonly by its trade name, Miralax, um, is an osmotic laxative. And in randomized controlled trials, it's been shown to improve stool frequency and stool consistency in patients with IBSC, but it does not improve abdominal pain compared to a placebo, nor does it improve what we call global IBS symptoms. Now, it's important to have a little bit of common sense about this. I think many patients with constipation um, will be treated with polyethylene glycol or Miralax, but it's over the counter. Many of the patients that my colleagues and I see with IBSC have already tried polyethylene glycol or Miralax, and it may have improved their stool frequency and stool consistency but they're seeking out medical care because it hasn't improved their abdominal discomfort. Right. And that's why I think it's so crucial for uh, gastroenterologists to be willing to step up therapy and not simply recommend to the patient to say, just take more Miralax or, you know, modify their diet that uh, we need to be willing to step up therapies that have been shown to improve abdominal pain. Right. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. All right. So let's um, start looking at the study. So um, the study was, was a multi-center double-blinded placebo controlled study. Um, can, can you go into a little bit around how the study was designed? Absolutely. Um, so Johanna, as you said, a multi-center, uh, specifically 78 centers in the United States um, enrolled patients in the double-blind placebo-controlled RCT. Um, so we know that the objectives were to assess the efficacy of linaclotide in reducing these abdominal symptoms for folks who have a diagnosis of IBSC. Um, so a total of 614 patients who met Rome three criteria for IBSC including um, average abdominal pain of greater than or equal to three on an 11 point um, Likert scale from zero to 10, as well as less than 10 complete spontaneous bowel movements per week and less than six complete spontaneous bowel movements um, in the week prior were met inclusion criteria. 
So the intervention was the high dose of linaclotide, which is the 290 microgram dose. That's the one that has been studied and FDA approved for IBSC uh, versus an identical placebo for a total of 12 weeks, followed by a four week randomized withdrawal period where all placebo treated patients switched to linaclotide during the withdrawal and where the linaclotide treated patients were either re-randomized to continue to receive linaclotide or placebo for the duration of that four week period. Uh, so they crossed over potentially. So um, regarding outcomes and endpoints, the primary endpoint that was looked at was a change in the baseline in weekly composite abdominal score, which was derived from um, this novel questionnaire and uh, the DIBSSC. Um, and the secondary endpoints were change from baseline of that daily abdominal score and change in baseline for each of the composite um, symptoms or, or scores that made up those symptoms, which as we mentioned were pain, bloating, and discomfort. It's really interesting. Um, I, I think we'll get to the, the diary, um, the DIBSSC in a second. Um, have there been any other studies um, looking at efficacy of a certain drug that, that was set up in this manner with a 12-week treatment period and then a four-week random withdrawal period? Is that, a, is that a common protocol or was this novel for this study? That's certainly a common protocol for phase three trials um, seeking approval for the treatment of IBSC. And that's because we want to ensure that people don't experience rebound severe constipation when they get switched to a placebo, as well as we want to see that people who are on placebo that get switched to active treatment start showing improvement compared to how they were doing on placebo. So those are, are two important things uh, when you do that switch. Interesting. So if we move into looking at this um, diary for IBS symptoms in constipation, um, which is what the patients were asked to, to fill out and complete and keep record of, correct? Yep. So this was a patient reported outcome tool, correct? Okay. So they were they were looking at not just the bowel movement related symptoms of frequency and consistency, straining, et cetera, um, but then on a separate evaluation of abdominal uh, symptoms that you mentioned, the pain, the discomfort, and the bloating, and then describing the pain, discomfort, and bloating on a zero to 10 scale um, with a recall of 24 hours. Um, the results were, were quite interesting. Um, Dr. Deutsch, can you summarize those results for us in terms of the abdominal pain, bloating, and distension? Absolutely. So um, just for starters, I think uh, just to note, and I think we saw this in the previous slide, 92% of patients did complete the entire 12 weeks worth of treatment. Um, so we know that the overall abdominal symptom reduction was greater with the linaclotide treated group um, compared to the placebo treated group. 
And that was a change um, there you can see on the left side of minus 1.9 versus 1.2 in the placebo group, which was a statistically significant change or improvement in the abdominal score. Um, there was also a reduction in individual symptoms of each bloating, discomfort, and abdominal pain. And again, you can see those um, lined up on the three right-hand side graphs um, on the side there. Um, what's more, even on top of these abdominal score symptoms, is that the linaclotide-treated patients were also more likely to be responders in more than half of the weeks of treatment compared to placebo-treated placebo, completed, uh, placebo treated patients. Um, and patients who were, once we hit that randomized withdrawal period, the patients who switched from linaclotide to placebo did have diminished treatment response, but they did not suffer from rebound worsening of symptoms, as Phil mentioned was one of the questions. Um, and a very small number of individuals actually discontinued the study due to side effects primarily related to diarrhea. That's really interesting. Um, so, so clinically speaking, Hannah, oh yes, go ahead, Dr. Schoenfeld. Just to try to put this into proper context, when you look at all of the data presented from this trial, what you're seeing is approximately a 35 to 40% decrease in the individual symptoms of crampy abdominal pain or bloating or uh, generalized abdominal discomfort with linapatide, you know, which trade name is Linzess, right. and that that was, didn't quite, wasn't quite double what you got with placebo, but it was uh, close to doubling how much reduction in both, again, bloating and crampy abdominal pain and generalized abdominal discomfort. I think the other thing that can't be captured on this slide that's important to emphasize is that although patients may see relief of those symptoms in the first couple of weeks, other data from this trial showed you don't achieve optimal relief of abdominal discomfort until six to eight weeks after you start the medication. And I think that's particularly important for uh, doctors to educate their patients about when they prescribe the medication and for the patients who are listening here to recognize that, you know, if your abdominal pain doesn't get a lot better in the first week, try not to be too discouraged because it may take up to six weeks before you feel a lot better. I think just to, there, yeah, just to tack on too, to Phil's point, um, you know, the patient reported outcomes that go into deriving these FDA endpoints are a bit complicated and sort of hard to define for patients to say, you know, um, after four weeks, you should expect to see a universal X percent improvement in your abdominal pain. And by 12 weeks, a Y percent improvement, unfortunately, um, 
there, it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? So the fact that, as Bill mentioned, you know, um, this data from the diary and um, this novel scoring system is sort of showing a 30 to 35% improvement in that abdominal pain score, especially the farther out on treatment you get with sustained use of medication is really, I think, helpful to our patients to see that hard and fast data is truly there to say, uh, to one set their realistic expectations surrounding use of this medication for sure. And then what a time frame is to expect to see those um, improvements or outcomes. So it's a really nice um, feather in the cap to linaclotide, so to speak, mm. um, to show our patients exactly uh, a little bit more about what to expect. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's it's a, a very good point to note that the the 12-week treatment period is an important education piece for, for patients to avoid early um, withdrawal from stopping the medication. Um, I, I'm curious, um, Dr. Schoenfeld, in your experience, in terms of, of this um, DIBSSC, this diary that was used that um, is, is quite novel, uh, at looking at abdominal pain and bloating and discomfort separate from the bowel-related symptoms. Because a lot of patients who have IBS-C, their pain is, is not really um, associated with stool frequency or consistency. Even if if that is, is solved through diet, let's say, they still have the pain and the discomfort and the bloating. So can you talk a little bit around why this scoring is, is unique and, and do you see any potential for use in this in other areas in evaluating these abdominal symptoms separate from bowel symptoms? Sure. Well, again, the abdominal discomfort it are the symptoms that are most difficult to treat yeah. with medication and yet those are the symptoms that tend to drive patients to see physicians. Exactly. And this DIBSC uh, questionnaire is actually unique. This is the first trial that I'm aware of where it's been used, and it was developed in conjunction with the FDA. Moving forward, I expect a similar type of questionnaire to be used uh, in trials of new IBS drugs. And what's important here is, as you said, it, it really is giving you a much more comprehensive picture of how helpful a drug is to improve not just the crampy abdominal pain that we sometimes see with IBS, but also for those patients who feel bloated. Right. You know, are we going to improve that symptom or more of just the generalized abdominal discomfort? And what's important about this study, it shows across all three of those domains, significant improvement when using Linzess. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I think in the past, it's just been more empirical evidence uh, of a drug, you know, providing relief of, of bloating or overall discomfort, but this is really a, a much more evidence-based way to evaluate, um, which is just very, very cool. Um, all right. So you both are treating patients. You're seeing patients coming to you with these symptoms and these complaints. Uh, you're making a diagnosis of IBS-C. 
what is this data, um, you know, how is this data kind of informing how you're treating your patients and what can other clinicians take away from this, these results? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, when Phil and I were reviewing this uh, randomized control trial, um, we were both uh, equally impressed with one another that our practices sort of align almost to the T um, of how we approach our care to the IBSC patient. Um, so I think as Phil sort of already mentioned, by the time they're seeing, uh, these folks are seeing one of us, first of all, they've been suffering for a long time. Um, sure. And like we have tried a lot of things that are within their grasp, um, including many of the over-the-counters, things like polyethylene glycol or Miralax, as we um, talked about, uh, many over-the-counter um, stimulant and osmotic laxatives as well. Uh, and so for starters, one, it's important to understand for our patients, like what is their goal for improvement, right? So when we talk about IBS, the very first thing that I educate my patients on is that by definition, IBS is a pain predominant GI condition, right? Where pain, bloating, and discomfort um, often are used interchangeably by um, individuals describing their symptoms. So understanding what their goals are for treatment. And certainly if that pain reduction and often is something that they're looking for, um, I don't think that we should hesitate at all to step up those osmotic um, laxatives to secretagogues, right? Where we know that this data and the data we're reviewing today indeed does show that um, we can improve their pain, bloating, um, and discomfort symptoms pretty significantly. Um, and I think like Phil mentioned also, it's just really important to educate people on what to expect um, yeah. is to avoid that premature discontinuation of therapy. So one, certainly, um, I tell my patients the first, second, and third side effects are diarrhea, and please expect diarrhea. Um, certainly, even within the first few weeks of use, that's not a contraindication to use the medication as long as you're able to keep up your hydration. But the goal is to expect, um, like we were mentioning, by the four to six to eight week time frame, that things should really start to improve for you. Um, and I think that probably echoes similarly to Phil's practice as well. Yeah, I also like to emphasize to patients that as a secretagogue, this class of medications binds to a receptor on the surface of the intestine. It doesn't get absorbed. So patients don't have to worry about interactions with other medications and in mm. fact, compared to taking a placebo, a sugar pill, there's no increase in any side effects with the exception of diarrhea, which is because it's very potent at treating <laughs> constipation. And again, I always warn patients, or I should say educate patients, hey, you may get some loose stools in the first week or two. If it's really bad, stop the medicine and it'll go away. But if you're getting a little bit of loose stool, but it's tolerable, then I don't want you to immediately discontinue the medication. That's really just a sign that the medicine is a powerful medicine for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, and you want to continue to use it. And uh, again, just reinforcing what Jill said, that it may take up six to eight weeks to see optimal therapy complete resolution of all your symptoms is a, sometimes achieved, 
but shouldn't be your expectation. We're trying to get clinically important improvement. And also that, you know, there's no golden bullet. That diet modification, as well as other interventions, are also important to improve your overall symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, oh, sorry, Johanna. I, I have a quick question for you, Phil. Um, so when when you um, educate your patients surrounding that sort of expected diarrhea within or loose stools within the first couple of weeks, um, I've definitely seen um, other providers or patients even who have asked me and said, you know, um, I'm having like four or five loose stools every day. You put me on this really high dose of 290 micrograms. I read online that there's a lower dose. Do you think I can try that lower dose? Um, so I definitely have some thoughts about that, but I would love to hear your thoughts <laughs> um, surrounding, surrounding possibly uh, stepping down to a lower dose in order to mitigate some of those bothersome consequences of using linaclotide. Sure. I I, I individualize my therapies and I absolutely will decrease from 290 down to 145 micrograms for patients if they feel like they're experiencing too many loose stools. I definitely do the same. Um, I, I think it's interesting and potentially a, a useful next direction too, to try to understand what that abdominal and the diary looks like for the lower doses of linaclotide because I don't think um, that that has necessarily been looked at in such detail as it has for the 290 microgram dose. Um, as I mentioned, I think that's the, the sort of gold standard for what has been FDA approved for IBS rather than for the chronic idiopathic constipation crowd. Uh, so it would right. potentially be interesting to take a look at that score um, for the lower doses as well. Yeah, absolutely. So in your summary, um, both of you mentioned what you're doing in your practice. Um, and you, you do say, um, that the use of, of combination therapy can be helpful for, for some patients, um, while they're on linactotide, um, perhaps peppermint oil, antispasmodics can be useful. Um, and, and you both advise a possible, um, low FODMAP diet if, if bloating is a predominant symptom working with a dietitian. Um, do you have patients that you're typically, um, doing combination therapies? How often is that? And, and how are you working with some of that? So, um, my, I will say, uh, shtick so to speak, um, when I speak with my patients, uh, the phrasing that I like to use when I discuss combination therapies or different treatment modalities for IBS um, is that I, as the provider, get to be the GPS, right? So I get to provide toll route, highway route, local road route, um, and you as the patient sort of get to choose which one feels the most comfy cozy, right at this point in time, obviously with some best guidance, right? We don't want to necessarily choose the one that's going to take us home in three hours versus the one that could get us there in 15 minutes. Um, but it's a, a very individualized treatment plan, right? And there's always the option to get off of one route if there is a traffic jam and get on a different route, or if the tolls become too expensive, then we can go to the local route. And so uh, I find that that really resonates with a lot of people when we talk about combination therapies. Um, 
so um, oftentimes, for example, we'll use like a secretagogue in addition to considering working with our GI psychologist for something like cognitive behavioral therapy or hypnotherapy, especially where, for example, like pain is a really predominant feature right. of their GI symptoms. Um, so it's, it's very useful to consider a combination approach. But um, I also tell people that like, um, you know, it'd be really nice to know which of the things potentially is the one that's the, giving you the most bang for your buck. And we start doing eight, 10 and 12 things all at the same time. It just becomes a little bit confusing. That's not right. a bad thing. Um, it just, we may get a little bit more understanding of uh, starting to layer things one on top of another over the course of several weeks, rather than throwing the kitchen sink sort of all right at the same time, right from the get go. It's an excellent point. Um, both of you are, are really, um, you, you stress the importance of patient education. And I know both of you um, are excellent communicators. So I'm curious, I always like to ask my guests about how you communicate to patients, the rationale of using a neuromodulator, if that is um, something that you think would be helpful. So I'd love to hear your pearls, your clinical pearls of how you um, make that case to a patient and, and get their, their buy-in on that. Well, I think it's, it's fairly easy to make the case to the patient, meaning that I just simply point to my head and say, you know, your brain is constantly in communication with your gut and your gut is constantly sending signals back up to your brain. And if the medications or other interventions that we use to impact the gut have not provided optimal relief, well, then we may want to use a medication that impacts the parts of the brain that are communicating with the gut. And thus, intellectually, I, I think that's easy to get across to patients. Right. I think what varies is patients' willingness then to use a neuromodulator based sometimes more on their emotional response than their intellectual response, Absolutely. as well as how much insight they have into how being in stressful situations, which cause very real changes in, in neurochemistry, may impact their symptoms. So um, I tend to find with my patients, they accept the explanation for why neuromodulators may work intellectually. They have varying levels of acceptance about being willing to try it. Meaning, you know, they may say, I understand what you're saying, Dr. Schoenfeld, <laughs> but I just want to, don't want to use any medicine that messes with my brain. And ultimately that's an individual choice by the patient. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have uh, probably a fairly similar approach. Um, I try to explain how uh, there's a two-way street of communication with the enteric nervous system that sits in the lining of our GI tract or what I call the big brain um, and the little brain that sits up inside of our head that helps to modify or modulate the central nervous system. Um, and much like Dr. Schoenfeld said, they're in constant communication, right? The, the central nervous system is able to see what lives out here in our world that can be threatening to us and tries to protect us by sending signals down to the gut. 
um, and vice versa, the gut sends signals about things it does or does not like up to the brain. So the brain can put those out into the world as words that we can each understand. Uh, but when those two start to miscommunicate or play a bad game of telephone, um, that's when we have to work on trying to modify the way that those nerves speak to one another. And isn't it interesting to know that the way nerves talk to one another is by sending these little tiny molecules back and forth called um, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. And those things sound probably quite familiar, right? Like a lot of people really uh, resonate with those words and understand what they mean. Uh, and I tell them, yeah, quite frankly, those, those neurotransmitters live in our gut just as much as they live in our brain. And so it really comes as no surprise then to most people that the type of medications I call neuromodulators are very similar to the types of medications that we use to treat some mental health concerns as well. Uh, but oftentimes we use them at a fraction of the dose um, and we know what to expect and the time frame in which we expect to see them work um, and that we tailor that approach of those medications to each individual's symptoms, um, side effects and lifestyle um, to avoid any untoward sort of consequences in terms of fatigue, for example, and somebody that has to be up for work at three o'clock in the morning um, and really try to tailor that approach. I also, uh, again, along the lines of education, I definitely send out articles. Um, I send out the Rome article and the ACG article on use of neuromodulators, why we use them and what are some of the most common ones that we use. I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt that they can uh, read and understand our scientific literature. And in fact, most do and can. Um, so I think that's, a, that's certainly a testament to the patients that we see. Um, and I give sort of, again, my list of, I would first try A for this reason, if not A, then B for that reason and C for a different reason. Um, and again, let people try to sort of have an open dialogue with me about choosing the one that they feel the most comfortable with. That's great. Um... Well, let's go ahead and wrap with some final clinical pearls um, as it relates to this article and your beautiful summary of the data um, and, and why and how physicians should be comfortable and, and, and frankly, uh, pretty excited, I think, in, in using secretagogues in their patients um, with IBSC. Um, so I think, uh, Dr. Schoenfeld, I'll start with you, clinical pearls of wisdom for providers, and then maybe um, anything that you'd like patients to keep in mind uh, who might have IBSC and have been reluctant to try a secretagogue. I think the bottom line is that assuming a patient has tried some over-the-counter therapies on their own, whether that be fiber or an osmotic laxative like Miralax, that the patient should ask their physician or the physician should automatically be prescribing these drugs as first-line therapy. Um, these are the only medications that are get a strong recommendation in both the AGA's evidence-based guideline on treating IBS and the American College of Gastroenterology's evidence-based yeah. guideline on treating IBS because the data is so clear from multiple trials about their benefits. So um, I, I think we're doing a disservice to our patients if, uh, if this isn't first line as long as the patients made some efforts with over-the-counter therapies. 
Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Deutsch, how about you? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, echoing what Phil said, I think uh, many people who, have, who come to see us in the office um, or colleagues who are looking for guidance um, will try those over-the-counter things first. And unfortunately, if those medications have failed, um, secretagogues are a robust, well-studied um, and strongly recommended next step in the therapeutic approach. Um, again, I think it's extremely important to understand um, a patient's lifestyle and goals for treatment. So that way we can get on the same page um, and make sure that what we're doing is within our patient's expectations um, and try to use that combination therapy if that's something that indeed could be helpful to um, to decrease their, their pain scores and to improve the form and frequency of their bowel movements. And I think for patients to, you know, that, that important piece that you've both mentioned several times today, um, that the, the maximum benefit comes within six to 12 weeks of, of taking the medication. So if they've tried it before and within the first couple of weeks were overwhelmed by the side effects or, or stopped taking it too soon, um, it, it might be a good idea to reconsider and, and talk to their doctor about trying it again and giving it a, a fair shake, so to speak. So thank you that's so much. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point. It sounds sort of crazy, right? To come yeah. from one of the experts in the field to say, why don't you retry this medication? But you, you make an excellent, <laughs> excellent point there, Joanna. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Deutsch. Um, so thanks to the both of you for joining me today and, and talking through this with our audience. Um, don't forget that uh, Dr. Schoenfeld is going to be our guest uh, on Twitter. He's going to be tweeting out a really interesting tutorial on the same study and taking your questions via Twitter on Tuesday, September 13th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. If you miss that and you'd like to um, see what happens, you can always go to the Tuesday Night IDS Twitter page and get a nice summary of that tutorial that will be coming on Tuesday. So thanks to both of you for being here today. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me, Johanna. Thank you. Thanks, it was Phil. nice to see the both of you. Um, and hopefully uh, we'll see you at ACG in October. Um, for the rest of you, please join us again next time for another Tuesday night IBS podcast episode. Bye, everyone. Join us again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS and be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.